The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 3-14. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, in him. In him we also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Kristen. This week I stumbled across an article from the New York Times that was written 10 years ago. It was true then, I think it's even more true now. So the article pokes fun at the practice of adding a hashtag and the word blessed at the end of social media posts. So according to the author, people in her social network used hashtag blessed because they got into graduate school, because they taught yoga in a Caribbean spa, and because they purchased a stylish outfit for their baby. She continued the article, here's what she wrote. She said, God has in fact recently blessed my network with dazzling job promotions, coveted speaking gigs, the most wonderful fiancés ever, and front row seats at Fashion Week. Now, according to the author, adding hashtag blessed has become the go-to way to brag about your own accomplishments without looking like you're bragging. So it's possible, she says, to use it as a humble, genuine sentiment, but usually it's blatantly self-promotional. She writes, surreptitiously braggy or just plain absurd. She ends her whole article in a way I found funny. She, She quotes from one comedian social media post before adding the hashtag blessed, the comedian wrote this. He said, caught a piece of bacon falling out of my sandwich right before it hit the ground. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) Now, you don't have to be a Christian to realize that our culture doesn't understand what it means to be blessed. Most of the absurd examples in the story come from people who applaud their own achievements as if a blessing is something you work for. They seem to confuse payment with blessings. Blessings don't come from work you perform. Those are called wages. The struggle to understand blessings, both what they are and where they come from, is not unique to the time and place in which we live. It's been a perpetual human struggle. 
fact, if you were to think about what, what characterizes the, the wrong thinking and the wrong teaching of false religions throughout human history, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's, it's thinking wrongly about the subject, what it means for God to bless you. So in, the, in this wrong thinking, in order to get a deity to bless you, you're commanded to do something. And the blessing then you receive for doing something for your effort is usually something physical, tangible. Like, if I do this thing, then I'll receive food or possessions or position or status. And the gospel, what Jesus teaches us, what God tells us about how he relates to the world is the complete opposite. The blessings that God gives us are bigger and they're longer lasting and they're more transformational than anything you can see, touch, taste, or handle. But the way the blessings come to us is not in payment for our works. They come as undeserved gifts of grace from the God who loves the unlovable. These are the realities that open the letter the Apostle Paul writes to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. So after greeting them, he launches into one lengthy sentence. Our, Our English translations have divided it into a lot of short sentences just to help us comprehend, but... The original was one sentence, verses 3 through 14, a sentence designed to overwhelm Christians with the kindness of God. These verses help us understand what it means when we say God has blessed us. Because the blessing of God is something better than a new job or a nice trip or name brand clothing. It also helps us understand how we actually have come to receive these blessings, And so this really long sentence answers three questions about the way that God blesses. So it answers the question, what are his blessings? How do they come to us? And why does he bless us? We began to answer that first question last week. Remember, we asked the question, what are some of God's blessings? And we looked at three of his blessings. God chose us, God adopted us, and God redeemed us. So let's continue to answer that question with the fourth blessing. God enlightened us. God enlightened us. Now, this concept of enlightenment we usually use in one of two ways. So first of all, think of it in a mystical way. Maybe you picture in your mind this someone getting a, in a type of trance-like state in order to hear messages from nature or a mysterious deity. I want you to consider the, a lot of Eastern religions. You have these devout men and women who burn incense, then they chant and they meditate. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to clear their mind of all thought with the hope of achieving some type of cosmic enlightenment. It's a, it's a non-rational type of enlightenment where you're trying to do your best to bypass the mind and usher your empty self into a heightened state of being. At least that's what the goal is. Now, we often use this word in the direct opposite way too. Think of in a very highly relational way or highly rational way. Maybe in history class you remember being taught about the age of enlightenment. And this is the opposite path of the mystic. This is self-determined study. This is, we're going we're gonna to figure it out. We're going to find knowledge. It's the triumph of mind and reason. So in, in, this, in this type of enlightenment, the idea is you cast off all supernatural thinking, any superstition or religion. You cast off anything that you cannot verify in a laboratory. Right? Only what you can test. Only what you can verify. So true enlightenment on this, on this hand comes from education and discovery. But I want you to think about how both of these claims of enlightenment actually fail to produce what they claim. Because both of them are like blind people stumbling around in the dark telling other people how to see. Because in both cases, the key to enlightenment is internal. 
is either I can somehow do this to get in this state where I can, I can hear or feel something that enlightens me. Over here, if I study just enough, if I discover enough, then I can understand and my mind can be enlightened. But enlightenment carries a sense that someone else enlightens us. Somebody else does the work. They bring light to us. Without somebody bringing us light, we would still be in darkness. Now look at what Paul describes in verses 9 and 10 to the Christians here. It says, He, speaking of God, made known to us the mystery of His will to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. So God makes known to us something that we could never discover on our own. He enlightens us with a light that we cannot find apart from Him. And it says here, the thing He enlightens us with is the mystery of His will. Now, the word mystery doesn't refer to the Nancy Drew stories that my wife read as a kid. God is not turning us into Sherlock Holmes or Donovan Welch. The word mystery in the Bible describes a truth that was not fully revealed in the past, but now has been revealed by God. Something that existed in the shadows that now God has brought into the sunlight. Before we look at what this mystery is, let's just pause for a moment. And consider how gracious God is to make this known to us. So he, he both revealed it to us, and then he illuminated our minds and our hearts so that we could understand, embrace, and enjoy what he's done. So God hasn't just given us a set of instructions and left us to figure it out on our own. So God's not like Ikea, right? Here's the instructions, weirdly shaped people, you figure it out on your own. God gives us his instructions, he gives us his words, then he gives us the ability to read and understand what he has written. A few years ago, I was, I was invited over to the Sandberg's house, I think it was just a few, many years ago, probably the last time they invited me, someday, maybe again. <laughs> I was over at the Sandberg house and I was, I was talking to Dr. Kay Sandberg, she has received a PhD in organic chemistry, I know you've, we like to talk about her, she, she has received this, and I, we were just talking about something, I said, hey... Dr. Sandberg, do you have a copy of your PhD dissertation here? She thought for a second, I think I have it somewhere. And so she went, she found it. I said, can I see it? She went, she, she brought it, like blew the dust off it, and she opened it up. And so you could say she, she revealed it to me. I could not understand one thing on the page she revealed. Like there were symbols I've never seen before. I don't know if it was written in English. I didn't take, I didn't even have to take chemistry in high school. Like this was all completely foreign to me. So she revealed it, but I had no ability to understand it. And what we're shown here is that God has not only revealed himself through his world and through his word and ultimately through his son, but then he opens our eyes so that we can understand his revelation. If he doesn't do that, we'd be as hopeless as I was trying to read this PhD dissertation. Like he has to shed his light into our hearts, into our minds, so that we can understand what he has revealed to us. And he has. I mean, that's why we've been singing, right? The words on the screen, the ones we've been celebrating, we do that because God has allowed us, he has given us this ability to understand what he's done. So what is this mystery that God has made known to us? Verse 10 tells us the mystery is his plan to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. So God helps us understand how the world was supposed to be, what happened to rupture it, how he has been at work to restore, and one day what it will look like in the future. 
Now, we need to understand this, that, that what we believe and understand as in Christians, as Christians, is something that doesn't make sense to those people who don't know God. I think we need to be very clear about that. A person who does, is not a Christian is not dumb. Like this is, it's not that we're smarter than anyone. Like the, the non-Christian can understand the words, can understand the concepts behind them, but what they can't do is their heart can't appreciate them. They remain blind to the beauty of God's plan in Jesus Christ. So Christian, if you believe the gospel, you believe it because God has opened your heart and your mind and your soul to believe, to see the beauty of it, and to embrace it as his plan. So God's plan is to bring everything under the authority of Jesus Christ. So there is an end, there is a goal to human history. The world is moving towards God's appointed end. Our world is not devolving into utter chaos. Neither is our world evolving into into some more noble place. The final chapter in our world begins when Jesus is crowned as Lord over all things, and it's a chapter that never ends. The pages on that chapter never run out. There is no final period. This year, I'm doing something I haven't done before, which is I'm reading through the Bible chronologically. So not just in the way it's been delivered, but it's been structured in a way that you sort of read it a little more in the historical order. What's been interesting is, well, of course, I still start with the book of Genesis. So most of this month has been reading the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means beginnings. So it's a very apt word to describe the first book in the Bible. But there are other things it could have been called. It could have been called unraveling. It could have been called disruption or division because that's really what the story tells. The the division begins in the garden between mankind and God when, when Adam and Eve choose to sin against God. The division then moves between husband and wife when God confronts them and Adam's like, well, the woman you gave me, she did it. We see division there. They have two sons. We see divisions between sons when one son, out of jealousy, kills the other son. Right, so God, humans divided from God, man from wife, brother from brother, and it just continues. As you read through the story, it just, it just continues to grow. You have tribes that start to war and fighting each other. Then they develop into nations, and nations do this. It's the story of God's world unraveling because of our sin. And here's what we're being told. God has a plan to weave all of the broken strands back together under the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ. And this plan, determined before time began by father and son, is the unfolding story of our world, and no one can do anything to stop it. Like, no one can do anything to stop God from doing what God has determined to do. God will accomplish his plan of remaking and reshaping the world into what he intends it to be. Everyone and everything will one day acknowledge that Jesus is the king of the universe. So this letter was written initially to the city of Ephesus, that there are remains of that city still today. If you were to visit that city right now, you would see the remains of a statue of Emperor Trajan, a Roman emperor. And it was a very large and impressive statue when it was built. And the, the, the key thing about the statue is his foot is raised and it's set on top of a globe. And so the statue was built and it was erected. It was there to, to make a point. The point is, who rules over the globe? Who rules over the whole world? And the answer is the Roman Empire. So don't mess with Rome. Rome is untouchable. Nothing can stop Rome. 
Well, something stopped Rome. And if you were to visit Ephesus today, here's what you would find. The globe is still there, but all that's left of Emperor Trajan's statue is the end of one of his toes. Like everything else is gone, just like the Roman Empire. And here's what we're being told, and this is what God convinces our hearts of, is that when everything else fails, Jesus never does. He will return and he will rule over all creation and every knee, including yours, will bow before him and you will do so either in loving worship or you will do so in fear of his judgment. So friend, when Jesus returns, he will either invite you to live in his perfect kingdom forever or he will cast you into eternal judgment. And so my prayer for you is that God will enlighten your heart and your mind so that you will see and confess that Jesus is Lord. Have you ever been to one of those Christmas Eve services where um, everyone's given a candle and then the lights are turned out? And the leader up front lights the candle and he turns to the person next to him, lights it. Turns this way, lights the candle, and then that person turns and it just sort of goes around. And after a little while, after everyone's lit the candles, you can start to see everything and there's light throughout the room. Everything's more visible. Well, that, that simple ceremony on Christmas Eve is designed to be a picture of what Christians do. We whose hearts have been enlightened by the word of God, we are to be the instruments, the bearers of light to others. And so, Christian, this is our our burden. It's our responsibility. It's our opportunity because our hearts have been awakened to the beauty and the glory of Jesus. We are supposed to carry the news of that beauty and glory to those around us. We have received light and we are to be bearers of God's light. Here's the fifth blessing. God sealed us. Look at verse 13. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Notice how Father, Son, and Spirit work together to bless us. So the Father determined in eternity past to save a people. The Son entered human history to take on humanity and die in the place of sinners. And then the Spirit continues the work of God in preserving and preparing God's people to receive our final inheritance. And so Father, Son, and Spirit, think about this, together bless us with every spiritual blessing. The Spirit promised by God through the prophets, we're told, verse 13, is placed as a seal upon the believer. So in my home study, there are two different seals I have, and each has a different purpose. The, the first one is a special seal which was made for me which says this book belongs to Josh Redberg. And so it, it's in a, this, this little clamper and so you get a new book and the idea is you slide the first page of the book in and you squeeze it and it embosses the seal on the first page. This book is a property of Josh Redberg. Somebody bought it for me as a gift to show ownership of my books. I stopped using it years ago when I realized no one cared. I know some of you have books in your house that say somewhere in there this book is the property of Josh Redberg. You're welcome. Okay, but this is intended, this seal to show ownership, this belongs to me. That's one seal. The second seal in my, my study is, is my degree from seminary. So the seal, thankfully, in this case, doesn't signify ownership. Like, I, I paid a lot of money to them, they don't own me. Felt like it at times during the process, but they don't. This seal is intended to show authenticity, it's, it's a nicely embossed seal on the corner of my degree, and here's what it's proof of, that Josh didn't just find a degree online, hit print, came off nice, and tuck. 
tacked on the wall and said, look it, I've graduated. The seal is there to say, like, no, he enrolled here, he did all the classes, he graduated, and we have awarded him this. So the seal is saying this is authentic. So ownership and authenticity, this is what it means when we've been sealed by the Spirit. We truly belong to God. He has marked us as his own. That means no one else can lay a legitimate claim upon our lives, and no one can lay a charge against us either. Even when we sin, even when we struggle, even when we're tempted to despair, the fact that God has given us his spirit testifies to the truth that we belong to him. We are authentic sons of God. We receive this seal, verse 13, when we hear the gospel message and believe. (coughs) Belief is necessary. Last week we looked at the blessing of election, how God chose us, here we see that we're responsible to believe the good news. This is not either or, it's both and. God chose us and we believe the gospel. He is sovereign and we are accountable. And the only way that we know we have been chosen and adopted and redeemed and enlightened is because we believe in Jesus and have received his spirit. And notice here that all the, all those who believe have the spirit. See, some, there's some false teaching that the coming of the Spirit on a Christian is, is a secondary thing. It's done at a, a different time. So first a person believes, then at some point in the future, then the Spirit may descend on them. But these two things are inseparable. We believe and we are sealed. There's no Christian who exists in a spiritless state. Like all Christians have received God's Spirit as a mark of His ownership that authenticates the genuineness of our profession. And the seal of the Spirit assures us that we will one day experience a full redemption and forever be with God. Verse 14 calls this the down payment of our inheritance. I want you to think about this for a moment. That a down payment is made in the same form as the final payment. In other words, if you're going to buy a house and you set up the closing date, and you went there, and you're like, I'm going to buy this house. They're like, okay, do you have your down payment? And you pull out a handful of gummy worms, say, here you go. They're not going to give you the house. Here You pull out a check, and the check is money, and money is the form in which you'll make the rest of the payments. So the down payment has to be the same kind as the full payment. So look at this. The down payment is the Holy Spirit of God. What's that mean about the inheritance? It means we get God in all of his fullness. We are brought into God's presence to experience his fullness forever. That's what the presence of the Holy Spirit signifies, that God promised to send his Spirit, his Spirit has come, and he promises that we will live forever with him, and the presence of his Spirit assures us that his promise will come to pass. God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has reminded us of just five of those blessings. Just five. But how wondrous they are. How much they assure us he loves us. If these are just five of all of the blessings he gives us, how deep is his love for us? So God has blessed us. What has God blessed us with? He chose us, he adopted us, he redeemed us, he enlightened us, and he sealed us. Now let's look at how those blessings come to us. How do those blessings come to us? Well, they come in Christ. This is our union with Christ. We are in him, 
He is in us. Listen, this is the blessing from which all other blessings flow. This is the most important description of what it means to be a Christian. We are in Christ. Notice how often this is used in these opening verses. Verse 1, faithful saints in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 6, he lavished his grace on us in the beloved one. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, his plan is purposed in Christ. Verse 10, he brings everything together in Christ. He does it in him. Verse 11, in him we receive an inheritance. Verse 12, our hope is in Christ. Verse 13, in him we are sealed. That's 11 times in this passage. In Paul's writings, he uses it 169 times. I mean, this is important. But what does it mean to be in Christ? I want to answer that question by looking at two verses and three images. Here's the first verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. So to be in Christ is to be made brand new. The old you is gone. There's a brand new you in its place. The second verse explains just a little bit more. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to be in Christ then means we have died with him and we've been raised with him. We no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live in our own strength, in our own power. We now live for Jesus by his power. We are animated and motivated by the deep love he has shown us. So these two verses tell us that being in Christ means we are brand new people. But that's confusing because we look the same. When we talk, we sound the same. We have the same name. We walk around in the same body. So how, how can we be brand new? I think the images fill in more of the picture. Here's image one, a temple. So in chapter two of Ephesians, we're, we're going to learn, keep learning more about what it means to be in Christ. So in chapter two of Ephesians, we're told that we are part of a building that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You are a brick. Congratulations. That's how God describes you. You're a brick. You're a brick. Now, what happens when you are added to some other bricks? Now you're a wall. Hey, you've achieved a lot. You went from being a brick to being a wall. Then some more bricks are added. What happens to this wall? Now this wall is a room. You're no longer just a brick. You're a room. Then they add some more bricks, and you're not just a brick. You're a building. And then something happens. Then God enters this building, and this building is now a temple. And so you are no longer just a brick, though you're a brick. It, it's you. You're added to it. It's you. You look like a brick, but you're so much more. You have a purpose. You have meaning. You have an identity you didn't have before. I'm not just a brick. I'm part of the temple of God. The Lord lives and dwells here. Here's image number two, a body. Chapter four of Ephesians, we're told, we're all part of a body who is in Christ. Christ is the head of this body. So it says, hey, we're different parts of the body. Maybe a toe, maybe a finger, maybe a tendon, maybe a ligament. We're not sure which part, but we're, we're a part of something bigger. But you're part of the body of Christ. You're not the head, though. So the head is what determines where the toes go. The toes are there to, to do what the head says. But the toes are connected to the head. Like, what the toe does matters to the head. 
I know you know this because you have gotten up in the middle of the night and you have walked and you have hit your toe on something and your head cared, right? Your head wasn't like, oh, it's just a toe. That is not what your head thought. Your head's like, this, this matters a lot to me at the moment. So we're just a toe, but we're part of the head. The head is the one who cares for us, who tells us where to go. And the head is also the one who, who keeps us alive, who gives us life. Because the head is the one who, who directs our, our, all the parts of us to work correctly. Here's image number three, a marriage. So this is chapter five of Ephesians. We're told the church is the bride of Christ. So what to be in Christ means you have been brought into a covenant relationship with Jesus where he will care for you forever. And like a husband and wife, Jesus lives with us and he shares the deepest intimacy with us and our future is wrapped up in his future. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for him. So to be in Christ means that we are never alone, we are never without purpose, we are never without hope, and we are never without power to obey. We are no longer slaves to sin, imprisoned by evil desires, and trapped by sinful habits. Jesus lives in us And we receive everything we need through our eternal, unstoppable, life-giving connection with him. We're going to see this pictured for us next week in baptism. So we're going to meet some men and women who come up here, and what they will do is they will make this confession of faith. You'll hear them say, Jesus is Lord. So make this confession. And then they will... They will go under the water, and as they go under the water, they're picturing something, right? That I have died with Jesus. My sins are gone because Jesus took them on me. I died with them. Then they will be raised out of the water, and they're picturing something there that I now live by him, and I live for him, and I live in him. As my pastor used to say growing up, they're raised to a walk in newness of life. And they will exit this stage, living as his people, representing his purposes by his spirit to accomplish his will. And so they come out of the water testifying to a new life. They are united with Christ. We'll actually see this today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we're going to eat bread, we're going to drink from a cup, and this cup symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus. But what are eating and drinking? Eating and drinking are how we stay alive. Right? There's, there's a certain length of time you can go without eating, certain length of time you can go without drinking, but you have to do both of them or you die. You can test that theory, but you're never going to know that you were successful. Okay. So when we eat bread that testifies to being the body of Jesus and we drink a cup that testifies to the blood of Jesus, here's what we're saying. Jesus is what keeps me alive. The only reason I live is because of Jesus in me. And so we're picturing our union with him. We have a new identity because we are in Christ. We are living out that identity. Now, each each one of us has multiple identities. That's different than multiple personalities. It's a totally different issue. Multiple identities. So, for instance, I'm I'm a human. That was sort of my first identity. I was also a son right away. Then I added some identities. You know, I, I had a brother. I had older brothers. I became a husband and a father and an uncle. I'm also an American. I'm a resident of North Carolina. I'm a proud citizen of Fuquay Varina. Those are some of my identities. I'm a Michigan Wolverines fan. That's fun right now. I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. Not so fun. Uh, At times, I'm an amateur woodworker, a bad golfer, 
sometimes a traveler. All of these identities are part of who I am, but none of these should be my fundamental identity. None of them should be given most prominence. My fundamental identity is that I am in Christ. And if that's my fundamental identity, here's what it means. Because I am in Christ, I can worship with people who are not Americans. I could even worship with those who would be enemies of America because my fundamental identity in Christ is bigger than that identity. It means that on a holiday, I might invite some people over and treat them as family that don't have the last name Redberg. Why? Because my identity in Christ is bigger than my, my relational identity with my parents and my siblings. I can listen. I, this is where it's crazy. I can even go to community group with Ohio State fans <laughs> because I'm in Christ. You see, our fundamental identity is the one thing that is most true about us and controls all our other identities. See, we don't lose those other identities. When someone becomes a Christian, they don't stop. I don't stop being a husband. Like, ah, I'm a Christian now. Sorry, dear. Like, I don't lose that identity. That identity just takes a back seat to this identity in Christ. This identity in Christ is the fundamental one. I want you to picture it this way. I want you to think of your life as a mosaic. So picture a mosaic. I want you to picture a particular type of mosaic. Have you seen those mosaics? So it's one big picture, and it's made up of little squares, and each square is a picture. You know, so you can probably do this online, I'm sure, or you can pay someone to do this, where they take all the pictures of your life, and those pictures make up the little tiles that can make up a much bigger picture. So in your life, I want you to think about all of your identities. These are those little pictures. But when they're put together and someone steps back, there should be one picture that's on the screen, and that's Christ. That's our fundamental identity, and all these other identities are part of that one. See, all of the pieces of our life are intended to work together to reveal an unmistakable picture of the work of Jesus in us. Notice this in verse 1. The letter opens addressed to those who are in Christ and in Ephesus. Both are simultaneously true. They are in Christ, they're in Ephesus, they're in two locations at once, but one of those lasts forever. In Christ is the single most defining truth of the Christian life. The final question this text answers is why. So we've seen the blessings, we've seen it comes by being in Christ. Why does God bless us in Christ? And we find the answer three times in our text, that everything God does in us and for us is so that his glory will be recognized and rejoiced in. God blesses us for our good and for his glory. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 might bring praise to his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Glory is heaviness or weightiness, substance. So it's the difference between brass and gold. It's the difference between a, a thin sheet of aluminum foil and a steel bank vault. Between something that is weak and worthless and something that is substantial and valuable. God does all of this so that we would recognize who he is. He has substance and so that we rejoice in him. We need to think about idolatry for just a minute because idolatry, very prevalent in Ephesus, but frankly, it's very prevalent everywhere, including in our own lives, our own homes, our culture. Our idols are just a little more sophisticated sometimes. 
But I want you to understand what, what idolatry does. Is idolatry attempts to capture the, the weightiness of their gods by making bigger and more expensive images. So if you were in Ephesus and you had walked into someone's home and they have a little shrine to their god and their, their idol is a little clay figurine, you would probably inwardly chuckle, maybe say to yourself, like, what a, what a weak god this must be. Like, how, how worthless, how easily ignored. But then if you were in someone's house and they had a big idol and it was heavy and it was large, maybe it was cast in gold, you would be like, wow, this, wow, this must be a real god. There's something here. It's something substantive. This is still happens today. The richest temple in the world is located on the southwest coast of India. The entire structure is plated with gold. A decade ago, a hidden vault was discovered inside the temple that contains an estimated $1 trillion in treasures. Let's, let's think for a second. What, what is this attempting to signify? That the god Vishnu is weighty and should be worshipped. And I would tell you, I could put a picture up there of Wall Street and their large temples to money, and they're trying to tell you we're important. What we do here, sacrificing our lives for this, is important. This is meaningful. This is truly worthwhile. This is where substance is found. But what Hinduism and what all other false religions does is take something small, something empty, something worthless, and attempts to make it appear bigger and more glorious than it is. So what it does is it adds gold, and it adds statues, and it adds jewels to a temple so that that false god will seem substantive. This is what happens in false religion idolatry. It's, it's what they do in worshiping these false gods, what a microscope does. A microscope magnifies something small so it will appear bigger than it is. And that's exactly what that temple is designed to do. To take something that's nothing, this, this empty God of nothingness, and try to make it appear big to our eyes. But I want you to understand the gospel works not like a magnifying glass or a microscope. It works like a telescope. Because a telescope doesn't take something small and make it appear bigger. It takes something enormous and magnifies our vision so that we can begin to perceive how enormous and substantial it is. So a microscope like idolatry tries to make small things bigger while a telescope, this is what we do when we worship the true God, brings something enormous into focus. Listen, we don't magnify God so that he will appear bigger and weightier than he is. We magnify God because we're beginning to see our, our vision is being magnified so that we can recognize and rejoice at how substantive, how weighty, how truly glorious he is. See, God doesn't need us to build temples like that. He doesn't need our gifts, our wealth, our praise so that he'll feel special, or so people will be like, oh, he must be important. What God does is he invites us simply to wonder at how glorious he is to find joy and meaning in magnifying him. 
So our lives become weightier, our lives become more substantive as we stop trying to make much of our lives and begin to make much of God. Now, Satan, the enemy of God, the adversary of Christians, he does not want you to bring glory to God. Like that is the the last thing he wants you to do. And so to keep you from living for the glory of God, he's going to do two things. I want you to understand this. I want you to be prepared for this. First, he's going to want to try to distract you. And here's what he distracts you with. He's going to try to convince you that physical blessings are better than spiritual blessings. The new boat, that's better than the new birth. Some sort of victory I achieve at work that's better than victory over sin and temptation. I mean, he loves nothing more than when we post on social media about all of our successes in life and then we slap the hashtag blessed on it. He's going to try to distract you from the blessings that God gives and get you to chase after empty things. His second tool is discouragement. If he can't distract you from God's blessing, he's going to try really, really hard to convince you that those blessings aren't for you. I want you to listen to what happens when Satan takes God's blessings and inverts them. I want, to, I want you to think about these verses, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and how Satan twists them to try to discourage you so you won't believe they are the defining reality of your life. Does this sound like what you sometimes hear whispered in your heart and mind? God wouldn't choose someone like you. I mean, God wouldn't choose someone who keeps on sinning. God wouldn't choose someone who struggles to read their Bible. God wouldn't choose someone who's not a very good Christian. He wouldn't choose you. God doesn't want someone like you as part of his family. I mean, look at everyone else around you. Everyone else has it together. There's no one else in that church that even struggles. They're all doing great. It's just you. That's why you're, you're not really a part of it. You're not really a part of his family. It makes sense that God would adopt them. It doesn't make any sense for him to adopt you. God's not going to forgive you for what you've done. You're way worse than anyone here knows. There's things you've thought about. There's things you've done. There's things you've said in your mind that if anyone else knew, we'd be shocked. God doesn't. God can't forgive that. He hasn't forgiven you. You keep failing. You know what, God? God's angry with you. You call yourself a Christian but you don't act like it. God doesn't have a big plan for your life. If he did, why does everything keep going wrong? Why is nothing working out? Why does none of it make sense? God doesn't care what happens to you. You're on your own. You better try harder. You're going to keep messing up. You're going to mess up again and again, and he's going to be done with you. He's going to cast you aside. Brothers and sisters, don't listen to lies. God is calling you to recognize his grace. The Christian life, you know what the Christian life is? It's constantly trying to actually believe that God is as good and kind and gracious as he says he is. If you're in Christ, You don't need a hashtag to prove God has blessed you. God has given you his word. He's given you this family. 
He's given you his spirit. What else do you need? Father, I pray that you will help us to believe what you've said. This is our battle. Our battle is to believe that you are as good and kind as you are. Because of our own sin, because we know how often we make promises and fail, because we know how easy it is to boast in ourselves about things which aren't really true, we often assign those same qualities to you. And so we rationalize why we don't believe what you say. You have told us that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. You will go on to say, and we will see this as we study, that your plan is to pour out the kindness your treasures of kindness on us forever and ever in Christ. But we don't believe it. So help us. Help us to stop listening to lies. Help us to stop thinking that our identity is primarily in what we do and what we accomplish. When you have told us our identity is what you have done and accomplished for us. So Father, help us to live out that identity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.